can turn back in your Bibles again to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Again, I'm glad that we had the scripture reading we did earlier in the service, falling as it did in the first part of Luke chapter 1. So if you were if you're able to focus on that scripture reading, you should be pretty much up to speed for our current text. We had we heard the account of of the angel Gabriel's announcements first to the priest Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son named John, later known as John the Baptizer or the Baptist. And then Gabriel's announcement to the Virgin Mary, a girl in Nazareth in Galilee, that she would have a son without a human father. And that son's name would be Jesus. As Gabriel told Mary, this, uh, uh, this boy... He said would be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then when Mary said how will this be since I am a virgin. Gabriel further explained that this would be one of the most spectacular miracles in history. There would be no human father. Rather He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he went on to inform her that her relative Elizabeth had conceived in her old age, and this was now the sixth month of her pregnancy, who had been called barren. Again, reinforcing the fact that with God, nothing will be impossible. Basically, a quotation from Genesis. Uh, from the uh, account of Isaac being born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. So Mary had amazingly, once she had understood as far as she could understand it, once she'd understood the angel's announcement, she had amazingly submitted herself to God's will without complaint. She had said, behold, I'm the servant, really the bond servant or, or the slave girl of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm at the Lord's disposal. And the angel departed from her. So now today we are moving on to verses 39 through 56 of the same text. And the the big idea of this next text in Luke chapter 1 is that the incarnation of Christ calls for jubilant praise from humble saints. The incarnation of Christ, God become man, that calls for jubilant praise from humble saints. We're going to see, as the sermon is titled, Elizabeth and Mary Rejoice. So let's work our way bit by bit through this next section of text. We'll start in verses 39 and 40 of Luke chapter 1. In those days... Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is really a prologue uh, to what follows, but it's interesting that what, what's the first thing recorded that Mary does after Gabriel announces that she's to be the mother of the Messiah and is to be a, a virgin conception and birth? It says Mary arose and went with haste, or some translate that eagerly. Went with haste or eagerly into the hill country to a town in Judah. So she went south from Galilee, um, a significant distance to travel. And uh, And she came to where Zechariah and Elizabeth lived. Remember, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. As the commentator David Garland puts it, he says... Her faith in the promise spurs her speedy departure to witness its fulfillment, as the shepherds will later hasten to the manger. He's picking up on a theme here from Luke. People are uh, told this good news of great joy, and whenever they are told the the good news, they hasten to go be witnesses to, 
to the evidence of, of the fulfilled promise. That just leads us into verses 41 through 45, where we see Elizabeth's spirit-filled cry. Verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth's spirit-filled cry. As soon as Mary walks in, it said she had just entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. It doesn't seem as if Mary had had a chance to say anything, to give any news of her own to Elizabeth. She merely walked in the room and said something in greeting to Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard that greeting of Mary, the baby John, John the Baptist, inside of Elizabeth's womb, leaped for joy. Certainly that's unusual, miraculous even. But, of course, <clears throat> if we believe as Christians, uh, as Christians do, if we believe these narratives, it's true. God did special things on this occasion. But Elizabeth, uh, she, she is filled by the Holy Spirit even to interpret what she just felt happen. Being filled with the Spirit, often that's communicating the idea that the Holy Spirit is empowering someone to speak directly from God, to, to speak in perfect truth uh, what God intends to be communicated on this occasion. She's filled with the Holy Spirit so that she can prophesy, essentially, so that she can speak the truth directly from God. What she says, her spirit-filled cry it's all, all these ecstatic words of pronouncing blessing. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Later, later she says, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now again, the fact that as Elizabeth by the Holy Spirit interprets it, the fact that the baby John was able, even in the womb, to supernaturally perceive the approach of the Messiah into the room. <laughs> because it says the baby leaped for joy. The baby knew enough to have emotion about this. That actually fits with what we read earlier from Luke chapter 1. That Gabriel had told Zechariah, this child, John the Baptist, would be very unusual. For instance... Gabriel had told Zechariah that he, this boy John, will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is one instance that, that demonstrates the truth of that. Already in the womb, John was making ready the way of the Lord. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he recognizes the Lord's approach and he leaps for joy as a baby. By the way, of course, he's not yet born, and yet he is very much a person with, with uh, of course, in this, in this case, there's supernatural elements mixed in here, but still, he has joy. <laughs> he's a person. That's not the point of the text, but it is informative for us, isn't it? Babies in the womb are already people, and the scripture treats them as such. But not only John, but now Elizabeth, too, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And so she knows what she could not have known otherwise. And the Spirit of God, as we said, puts the words in Elizabeth's mouth. <clears throat> and notice as she pronounces these words of blessing, Blessed are you, Mary, among women. That's a passive word. And same in the original Greek. The passive participles for blessed. So, the important thing to understand about that is 
That refers to what God has done for Mary. It's ascribing really glory to God, saying that someone is highly favored and blessed because of what God has done graciously for them. Mary is is a recipient of God's great favor, that he should allow her to be the mother of his own son. Blessed are you among women. No other woman has, has had or ever will have this privilege to be the mother of God become man. And blessed is the fruit of your womb. Again, Elizabeth speaks as if the unborn child inside Mary is already a person. The ever-blessed God. And so he is. And of course, Mary, excuse me, Elizabeth says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Of course, it's not actually a, a question seeking an answer. It's more of a rhetorical question, right? Why? How? Elizabeth is shocked at her privilege just to be in the same room with the Messiah inside his mother. Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Of course, this is the first time in this Gospel of Luke that Jesus is called Lord. And it's, um, I think it's helpful to understand also that in this, in this first section of Luke, we call it the birth narrative, John and Jesus. In this first section of Luke, uh, this same term for Lord occurs 23 times, and it refers to that way to the God of Israel. And so there's this immediate identity somehow between this baby Jesus and the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God, whose mighty acts of deliverance we'll hear about again in a moment. As Mary, Mary will reflect on the, on the fact that God has always done great things for his people, but now he's doing the greatest thing of all. And, of course, this confirms, as Garland has mentioned, that Jesus is Lord from the inception of his life, from his conception in the womb. Elizabeth says about Mary, she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment. This also is sort of in contrast, actually, to Zechariah, who was a good, righteous man, but who evidenced some unbelief when the angel Gabriel told him about John, and that John would be conceived and born. Zechariah was tempted to disbelief because he and Elizabeth were so old. They were too old, naturally speaking, to have a child. But then when the same angel Gabriel had told Mary she would be the virgin mother of the Messiah, she believed. And so Elizabeth says, blessed is she who believed. Again, the commentator says, later in this gospel, a woman cries out to Jesus from the crowd, blessed is the womb that carried you and the breasts from which you nursed. He responds, but blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's Luke eleven twenty seven to 28. This reply clarifies that Mary is not blessed simply because she is the mother who brings this special child into the world. It is because Mary has heard, believed, and obeyed, and she becomes a model of faith. Again, we are not to, to approach Mary with... Um, the sort of reverence which we should reserve for God alone. Mary was a sinner of Adam's race like the rest of us. And yet she was highly blessed by the Lord, first of all, to be chosen as the mother of the Messiah. And second, because she was graced with such faith to embrace the promises, to hear God's word and immediately believe it. And she should be an example to us. As we've been in the book of Genesis so often recently, saying that Abraham, imperfect though he was, is a model man of faith. So with Mary, she is a model woman of faith. And we should, we should aspire to that kind of immediate, 
simple trust. Mary was not told by the angel Gabriel how all this would work out for her. A girl who is discovered to be pregnant when she's not supposed to have known a man yet. She wasn't told by Gabriel that all that she might want to know for her security. She wasn't told yet how Joseph, her betrothed, would respond to all this. All she was told was the important thing, that she would be the mother of the Christ. And she simply trusted the, the promise, rejoiced in it, and said, God, I am at your disposal to do with as you will. <laughs> I'm your servant. We should imitate that kind of faith, even when we don't understand how trust and obedience to God is going to work out for us. Blessed is she who believed. This leads, uh, Elizabeth's spirit-filled cry leads into Mary's jubilant praise. We often call it the Magnificat. <clears throat> comes from the Latin about how she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is in verses 46 through 55. Let's read that portion together. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, Luke doesn't specifically say that Mary was filled with the Spirit, but it does seem from what she says and how she says it that this, again, is the Holy Spirit moving in her to say this. <clears throat> uh, perhaps Luke doesn't, doesn't say that she was filled with the Spirit at this time because it already said the Holy Spirit had come upon her uh, in such a unique way to cause her to conceive the Christ. But in any case... Mary's words here, they are a hymn, they're a song, they're poetic. And the wording and the themes of this song are, are really drawn upon everything in the songs and the psalms of the Old Testament. You think of Hannah's song of praise when she conceived Samuel in answer to her prayers. There's a lot of that in here. You think of the Psalms of David, Mary's great ancestor. Though the themes and the feel of that are in here. Uh, there's others, other places people have observed. Habakkuk. But really it's just the old, whole Old Testament. Uh, one person expressed it as she, she's working with uh, all, all the entire palette, the entire color palette of the Old Testament songs and psalms. And she's, she's now composing her own song. But She's, she's drawing on all these themes from the Old Testament. And certainly Mary had heard these kinds of words in the synagogue all her life. Now the Holy Spirit is enabling her to draw on these themes to form her own psalm. And it's helpful reading through this to understand uh, this is a very Hebrew song. Mary is using a lot of what's called parallelism, so normal in Hebrew poetry. Things will often, for instance, be stated more than once in different words to, to bring out more color in, in, in what she's talking about. For instance, right, right off the bat, the first thing she says, she says the same thing two different ways. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. My soul, my spirit, talking about the same thing, her inner being. And magnifying the Lord is equivalent to rejoicing in God, her Savior. What does it mean to magnify the Lord? 
even our English word magnify might help us a little bit. You know, if you put something under a magnifying glass, as people have often said, it makes it look large to us. But even the, the original word we've translated that way, it means to make great or to praise or to extol. So in the sense of praising someone, we're making them great, big. Mary is magnifying and rejoicing in the Lord God, her Savior. And it reminds me a lot of, again, a Psalm of David, Psalm 34. Verses 1 through 3, David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. And that theme of humility really comes out in the rest of Mary's words. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Mary goes on to say, he has looked, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Again, his servant, his doule, his slave girl. I am so, I am of such a low estate. I'm so insignificant. But he has, he has condescended to regard me. To bear his Messiah, his son. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. He who is mighty, that high one, high and lifted up, and I'm, I'm way down here. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The idea of holiness, not just, not just moral purity, but really the central idea of holiness, being transcendent, so far above, not just in the same category, but greater, but holiness in a totally separate category. God is the creator. I'm just his frail little creature. But he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. The fact that God condescends to use such weak and insignificant creatures in such powerful ways, it just magnifies his holiness all the more. And indeed, the fact that the greatest salvation and victory God ever accomplished, she accomplished by causing a, an insignificant girl from Nazareth to become pregnant with a little baby. That should blow our minds. There is an awe that the transcendent, holy, mighty God would do such things for her But she also knows that this is in perfect harmony with his character. As Isaiah 57, 15 puts it, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is so high and lifted up that we could never approach his dwelling place on our own terms. We could never be fit, just because of who we are, to be anywhere close to God. But this high and holy one, he will be approached by certain people, and it's by the people who know themselves to be so small. It's by the people who are lowly and contrite. And Mary says, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This word for mercy is often used in the Greek Old Testament to translate that Hebrew word chesed, which is all about loyal, gracious, faithful love that God has in covenant for his people. So really, God's covenant faithful love, his mercy in that sense, is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary's context, at this point, Mary was part of the Jewish people, which was so downtrodden, and they had no outward signs to speak of that God had not abandoned them. And yet Mary is saying, God hasn't abandoned his people. 
His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God never lets his people go. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. The rich he has sent away empty. Of course, in between those statements, she talks about how God exalted those of humble estate. He filled the hungry with good things. But in the actions of God in bringing his son into the world, God is disregarding those with the world's wisdom. He's disregarding the high and mighty in the halls of power. He's disregarding Caesar and Herod and the Jewish leadership, in fact. He's brushing them aside. The thoughts of their hearts are confounded by what God is doing. They can't even understand it. He's brought down the mighty. He sent the rich away empty. This should remind us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26. We may not be the physical family God's chosen to raise the Messiah, and yet we've been chosen to be in Christ, to be one with him. And so Paul says, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Indeed, he has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. David Garland again, he says, this is what God does for those who are low on the totem pole. And it foreshadows what Jesus will do in his ministry in the rest of the Gospel of Luke. Healing the sick, exercising demons from the demonized, reaching out to and restoring the discredited sinners and friendless pariahs, and preaching good news to the poor. See, many of these themes of Mary's song come out later in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 6, when Jesus pronounces the Beatitudes. Listen to how Jesus speaks of those who are blessed by God. Luke 6, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So God fills the hungry with good things. But you have to come hungry. You have to come knowing that you are, as Jesus said to one church in the book of the Revelation, you are pitiable and poor and blind and naked. Then you'll have room to receive God's bounty. Then he will delight to richly bless you in Christ. God fills the hungry with good things. And those good things, again, as the Gospel of Luke will go on to explain to us, those good things aren't simply the tangible goods of this life. This isn't a reason to simply become discontent with our outward circumstances in this life and say, well, now I expect God, now that I'm humble, to give me everything I ever wanted in this life. (laughs) No, God has better things for you than just a better house and a better car and a better job. He may bless you with some of those things in this life, or he may not. But he has even better things to fill you with. 
chief among those things, <laughs> I think that's an understatement, um, summing up all those things is that God gives his Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He gives you himself. He could give you nothing greater. As Jesus says in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? God's good gifts are often greater than the things we, um, than we discontentedly long for. Mary says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Just briefly, again, that this... Mary is a model to us. She, she could somewhat comprehend the magnitude of what God was doing because she knew the, the plot of the story. She had grown up <clears throat> with what we call the Old Testament. She knew her Bible. She knew what God had promised to do. And therefore, she could appreciate it when it began to be fulfilled. She knew God's promises to Abraham and to his offspring. And now God was bringing the final great offspring or seed that was promised to Abraham through her womb. But again, if we don't know our Bibles, if we don't know God's promises, how do we expect to appreciate the fulfillment of those promises? Mary was prepared to receive God's great gifts because she knew his promises. Then finally, we, verse 56, we come to this epilogue, which says, And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Some think that Mary actually stayed until John was born. Some think she left shortly before. I suppose it doesn't matter much to us. But it's just finishing out the story before it goes on to talk about uh, what happened with Zechariah when his son John was born. And then it will come back in chapter 2 to that famous text about Mary and Joseph and how God providentially arranged for them to be in Bethlehem, the city of David, when Jesus was ready to be born. But let's further apply the text. We've examined the text, but let's further apply it in three ways, quickly. I... I've just worded these three applications as three different ways in which we should rejoice. First of all, rejoice with wonder at the incarnation of Christ. If you aren't filled with wonder and awe at this incomprehensible truth that God became man, then you missed everything. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name... He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> that is, those who have this privilege of becoming the children of God, this didn't happen according to any human plan or, or any human instrumentality, and it's not about what family you're born into. It's not even about um, the human will in any sense accomplishing this. 
God himself gave birth to you if you are his child. He enabled you to believe in Christ's name. But the next verse says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. To think of the creator, the one who spoke everything into existence, humbling himself to be conceived in a girl's womb, born amidst animals, not even a proper bed, born into a poor family. I know these are all somewhat stock references for us at Christmas time, so we they just don't hit us as much anymore. But God humbled himself so far. Not only did he become one of our race, but he became, even according to the standards of our race, insignificant. So that he could save us. That should bring great wonder to our hearts. That the emotion, the affection and the, the the sentiment that the psalmist had when he says when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, what you have made the sun, moon, and stars what is man that you're mindful of him? Who is the son of man that you visit him? And yet Jesus Jesus is God come down to become man. And it's not just that Jesus was once a man. It's not that the Son of God for a while became human. But from the point of conception onwards, God the Son is eternally, everlastingly, put it that way, He is everlastingly man. As someone recently wrote, he will never abandon us. Jesus is now risen from the dead. He's exalted in glory, and yet he's still a man. He will always be part of our race. Doesn't that blow your mind? And when we get to heaven someday, we will see him face to face as a man. He's a very sufficient savior for you. He's God, and so he's almighty, but he's man. And so he shares in everything that you know. Except he was without sin. Secondly, not only rejoice with wonder at the incarnation of Christ, but rejoice with delight in the fellowship of believers. So I'm glad you're here today. As Mary sought communion with Elizabeth as someone who had also received God's amazing grace. Mary made a beeline to Elizabeth as someone else who would understand what's going on here. And as Elizabeth rejoiced in Mary's belief in God's promise, you believe too. So we who have received amazing grace and believe the good news of Jesus Christ ought to seek each other out, to rejoice together. It's only natural, right? We shouldn't be embarrassed of our desire that the world doesn't understand to gather on the Lord's day and to seek each other out for fellowship even beyond that. We have a bond that the world can't understand. 1 John 1, the apostle writes, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, that word become flesh that he wrote about in his gospel. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. That, that commonality, that fellowship, communion. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. There is joy unspeakable, filled with glory for those who know and trust God's promises and who have Jesus as their own. Never be ashamed of that. Psalm 149.1 Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. The proud cannot understand our songs, our hymns of praise to God. It makes no sense to them. But the humble understand it. And we should have such a love and affection for other people that God has made humble enough so that they understand his grace. As the hymn says, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly king may speak their joys abroad. So, we should rejoice with wonder at the incarnation of Christ. We should rejoice with delight in the fellowship of believers. And lastly, rejoice with humility at the grace of God. Everything about Elizabeth's greeting of Mary, and then about Mary's song, it all hammers one point over and over. Humility before God. They're able to rejoice to this level because they're humbled before him. They don't feel like they deserve any of this. Like they're owed it. Or it was just to be expected. So rejoice with humility at the grace of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, undeserved favor. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The poverty of being conceived and born the way he was, and then dying the death he died in the place of sinners. Jesus went to that level so that we could have his wealth. Not only would we no longer be spiritually destitute, but we would have all the riches of Christ. You might say, well, that's a nice thought. Nice Christmassy thought, right? Though I'm actually doing just fine on my own. I'm not some poor wretch that needs riches. I'm not some oppressed slave that needs a deliverer. Well, you know, that's exactly what Jesus' fellow Jews said. It was one of the greatest greatest examples of what John had said earlier in his gospel. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Because they didn't think they really needed him for who he really was. <clears throat> John eight thirty one. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We're, we're full, full Jews. We're in the right religion and of the right stock. <laughs> We're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The central thing to understand, even if you feel like you have an easy life in some ways, the central thing to understand about why you need Jesus is that you are a sinner. You have a debt before God that you could never pay. And you are enslaved to your sin. If you don't have Jesus as your savior. Your sin runs your life. In rebellion against God. And when payday comes. The wages that sin pays is death. Eternal death. 
That's a pitiable condition. It's even more pitiable when people are blind to it and they think they're the masters of their own fate. They think they're not slaves to anybody. They think they have no debt. It's pitiable enough if someone is in a vehicle headed toward a cliff and the brakes have gone out. It's worse in some ways if if they're in denial and they don't they don't think there's a cliff there. You need to recognize that you are a sinner because then you're ready to receive Jesus on his terms. First Timothy 1.15, the Apostle Paul said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world, why? To save sinners. Of whom I, Paul says, am the foremost. And Paul goes on basically to say, And if Jesus saved me from my great sin, he'll save anybody. First Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. See, that's why he came, to die on the cross, to suffer for sins once, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous one in the place of unrighteous people. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Or Hebrews 2 looks at it from the point of view of the fact that because we're enslaved to sin, we're also enslaved to death. And the devil brought our race into all of this by, by bringing about our fall in the garden when we listen to his lies. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children, the, the children in context there that God intends to bring to glory, the people Christ came to save, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you fear death? You should. Jesus came to deliver you even from that. If you're not humbled before your creator, realizing that you have offended against his law continuously throughout your life, that you've lived for yourself, not for your maker. If you don't tremble before your maker as he says that you stand under the sentence of death, you should. Humble yourself before God. Realize that you are not high and mighty. There's only one who is. And you need him. Isaiah 66, 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? We could broaden that out in principle. What do you think you're going to do for God? You think you're in any way his equal? But God says, all these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I often like to go back to the picture, <clears throat> which is a true story in Luke 18. It's in the other Gospels as well. The picture of a blind beggar in Jericho who heard that Jesus was coming. And he was humble enough to cry out for Jesus' mercy. Luke 18.35, As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. 
Jesus came for blind beggars. When you know yourself to be a beggar before Jesus Christ with no claim on his grace and on his love, then you're ready to receive the gift of his grace. Then you're also ready to rejoice in that grace. Earlier, we sang a hymn by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. You know, he wrote another hymn that expresses this so well, this, this humble praise for God's saving grace. It's the hymn titled, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Can you join in this sort of a song? Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble poor believe. Hear him, you deaf. His praise, you dumb, your loosened tongues employ. You blind, behold your Savior come. And leap, you lame, for joy. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you that though the... Uh, the exposition of your word was entirely inadequate. Thank you that you promised to use it anyway. We ask that Jesus would be magnified in our sight. And that we would be small in our own sight. Help us to be ready to greet him as we ought. Because we realize we have no, no rightful claim on him where we can demand anything from him. Help us to humble ourselves before you, God, so that you will exalt us by your grace. We bless you because you have given your people every spiritual blessing in Christ. But Lord, again, if there are people here, and I'm sure there are, who do not yet have Christ for themselves, help them to see that they are sinners that they are condemned before you and that they need to be reconciled to you through the death and resurrection of your Son. May they welcome him not just as a baby who's been born, not even just as a king, but as Savior, as Redeemer, the one that they desperately need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.